Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, so, Crystal, today we are going to be talking to a bit, bit of an expert on psychedelics and yeah. as it pertains to mental health. So, it's actually really, really interesting topic. People loved it when we talked to Dr. Carl Hart mm. about the war on drugs. Yeah. It seems to be a topic that people enjoy. And I'll tell you, I'm really interested in this topic myself. Yeah, absolutely. Especially there's a lot happening right now with regards to um, science pushing forward, potentially getting FDA approval for MDMA in particular to be used for treatment of things like PTSD, which would really be a huge deal. A lot of these substances were touted decades ago as potential wonder drugs. Then there's like this hippie backlash freak out. Everything's pushed underground, and you've had a very recent mainstreaming and um, concerted effort by uh, organizations like MAPS to make sure that scientific studies are being done in a rigorous way so you can prove the efficacy of some of these treatments. So really super excited to talk to Ismail Ali of MAPS about all of that. By the way, I think it's kind of annoying that they even have to, like— dot their I's, cross their T's, just to make the case that, like, turns out these things that people have been doing for hundreds of years, if not thousands, have some benefit to them. Yeah. Like, yeah, no shit. That's why people have been doing it. Yeah, well, there's two pieces to that. If this ties in, I guess, to the, like, um, the snake oil, what patent medicine, right, that yeah, conversation, there's yeah. def different, like, you know, regulatory regimes. So, look, if you want to sell something as a pharmaceutical and have it be claimed as medicinal, I'm in full support of having a body of research backing that up. But obviously, both you and I agree that prohibition around these drugs is stupid, counterproductive, and has been a tremendous evil to society writ large. Totally. So we're going to get into that uh, with Ismail, among many other things. So a uh, bunch of stuff going on. Uh, I saw this yesterday. I'm surprised by this. I'm actually floored by this. So there was uh, Republican Senator Kennedy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he's from Louisiana, right? Yeah. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, John and Kennedy. He was on, um, hilarious that his name is John mm -hmm. Kennedy, by the no way. Relation to the oh, definitely no relation to the No relation <laughs> to the Kennedys, but definitely a relation to Miss Doubtfire. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look at a picture of him. Um, so anyway, he was on Sean Hannity uh, last night, and he made the case that this is crazy that the United States is not taking the lead in vaccinating the world. Joe Biden should vaccinate the entire world and he should do it right now. And not only should he do it, we should have made in the USA written on the syringes and on the vials so everybody knows who's doing it. Yeah, which makes intuitive sense. And by the way, other countries around the world have understood like the potential power of vaccine diplomacy, right, and getting credit for helping other countries be able to vaccinate their populations. Here in the U.S., um, uh, we've done actually surprisingly a very good job. Uh, we've been ahead of most of the world in terms of the percent of our population that's vaccinated. Seems like we've hit a little bit of like a plateau that most people who are going to get vaccinated have done so. That might change once they open it up for kids. That's a whole other conversation. So, yes, I like this idea very much of, like, let's aggressively be the country that's vaccinating the world. However, one thing you don't hear from him here is he wasn't asked about it. Maybe as a view, that would surprise me. I don't really think so. But um, he's not talking about, you know, changing any of the patent protection. So this would be once again using, you know, the existing pharmaceutical companies mm. and just ramping up production and feeding more profit to them rather than, hey, let's lift the patent protection so that. Not only can we make more vaccines here in the U.S. that we can ship around the world, but other 
factories around the world could also make these um, pharmaceuticals, make generic versions of them, of the vaccine, so that you could increase supply and get people vaccinated even faster. So then you're saying he basically wants to do it through the COVAX scam? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, he didn't say COVAX, and I don't know that that's specifically what he means, and I don't even know if he's thought through exactly what the mechanism would Mm -hmm. be. But the best way to vaccinate the world is not only for us to contribute what we can monetarily and with the extra doses that we have, but also to be able to ramp up production, something that we covered here, we covered it, um, Breaking Points and Rising, I know you covered too, the Biden administration claimed to want to do. Right, yeah. And was going to push this, you know, push this effort, the World Trade Organization, to try to lift the patent protection, and that has gone absolutely nowhere, and it's sort of just fallen off the table. Well, you needed unanimous approval, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, how many countries did they need unanimous approval from? It was like nine or 11 or something like that? I don't remember, but Germany immediately was like, yeah, we're not doing that, because they've got their own domestic pharmaceutical companies. I will go as far as to use this word. That is straight up genocidal. Mm. When you say... We have the potential to make vaccines in all of these factories because we know how they're made. And they're waiting. They say, just give me the word and we'll start doing it. And you say no because you're infringing on a patent. And so Pfizer might come after your ass if you do it and sue you. That's genocidal. Give them the green light. It's a world pandemic. Like, who are we kidding? This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. But to Kennedy's point, though, uh, yes, they, they should obviously lift, you know, um, what, what's it called again? I forget the name of it. Patent protection. Well, uh, yeah, but there was a, a name for it that I'm blanking on. It doesn't matter. But Martian rights. No, no. It's, okay. It's the 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 exact <laughs> trips waiver. Trips oh, waiver. Okay. Yeah. So um, they should definitely do that. But to Kennedy's point, I actually like the idea of like the U.S. going the extra mile and delivering it, and yeah. and I love the idea of USA written on the vials. And here's why. I mean. The way that we look around the world right now is exactly how we are, Mm. which is like incredibly barbaric and savage. And we're the nation that goes in and bombs the shit out of you. And then we leave in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, we leave your country in tatters and jack your natural resources. And the reason people look at us like that is because we are like that. And when you look at what China's doing, I mean, we just learned this with Afghanistan. So we're pulling out, which obviously is a good thing. But then immediately China goes, not only are we getting in. But we're, we have $62 billion. We're going to build all of Afghanistan. We're going to build their entire infrastructure out. And the way this works is, hey, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. What if I gave you $62 billion and set up your infrastructure, and in return, all you have to do is give me access to your trillions of dollars in mineral wealth and opium? Yeah. That's what they're doing. So they're doing a, a more—they're doing the evolution— of imperialism. It's the next step in the evolution of imperialism. Back in the day, there was a time when people would come on your shores and just say, this is my land now. That was the original imperialism. Then the United States said, oh, we got a brilliant evolution from that where we'll show up and we're not, we're not even going to be here, but we are going to put in a puppet dictator from your own country who's then going to allow us to jack all the resources. Mm-hmm. That was the next step. Mm-hmm. Now China's going the even next step. Like, what if we did a new deal for the entire world and then they allowed us the access to all the resources? Yeah. So anyway, doing the, the thing with the vaccines would be a way of saying of gaining some more goodwill around the world and also reasserting a role as a leader. Now, you know, everybody knows me. I'm a non-interventionist. And so I don't want to get involved in wars. But in terms of trying to have 
at the very least neutral alliances around the world, but more likely friends around the world. I think the way you do that is by doing acts like that, you know, just in the same way the Marshall Plan. Like, yeah. there are ways that you do it that are intelligent, where you're, it's not you're, you know, making orders at the barrel of a gun. You're making orders or, or you're just cooperating with the rest of the world by giving them some food or giving them vaccines or helping them out. And then that'll make it so we're not nearly as isolated in terms of right now we're viewed as the world's biggest threat by a mile and a half well and you know i mean it's tremendously correct as the moral thing to do oh of course right yeah uh, here in the u.s you know we definitely have a sense of like return to normal and not wearing masks everywhere and people going back out and going to concerts and be able to feel safe again and kids will go back to school like normal in the fall um uh, you know god willing <laughs> um but that's not the case in a lot of countries around the world. Well, now the Delta variant, a lot of places are spiking. Exactly correct. And so, um, you know, this is it's really a race against time. I just saw a number this morning that because we were able to roll out the vaccine as effectively as we did, we probably saved somewhere around 300,000 lives. OK, so when you look at the number of countries around the world, I don't know what the most recent numbers are, but as of, you know, just maybe a month ago, there were a massive number of countries that hadn't administered their first dose. So, yeah, what you're talking about. Even Australia about has a relatively low vaccination rate. Yeah, apparently that was kind of by choice. They it hadn't gotten hit. They hadn't gotten hit really hard. Because they shut everything down. And yeah. then everyone just felt kind of like, yeah, we're good to go. And now so they haven't they haven't gotten their act together on the vaccine front. But um, but yeah, many countries around the world are in really dire shape. And the fact that we aren't doing everything that we can, including waiving patent protection so that you can up the production levels is truly unconscionable. It would be really nice to have like this one thing that you could be like, look, we're doing something that's actually good for people and actually good yeah. for the world. No, absolutely. Um, so tell me if you have it up in front of you. I'm mm -hmm. very curious about this, uh, this news we got on the Pacific Northwest, obviously they had a ridiculous heat wave that yeah. shattered records. Tell me a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about this uh, thing that's going to scare everybody known as the wet bulb temperature. <laughs> yeah, which sounds gross and is terrifying, actually. It's not gross. It's terrifying. Um, so first of all, every time one of these extreme weather events occurs— um, a lot of people who are interested in not dealing with climate change are quick to say, like, well, the freak things happen and we can't attribute it directly to climate change. Well, there's a group called the World Weather Attribution Network set up, 27 climate scientists set up to actually look at these extreme weather events and say, could this have been have occurred if not for climate change or can we directly link this to climate change? And in fact, a new analysis by this group finds that um, this heat wave would be virtually impossible right, yeah. if it weren't for climate change. Even with climate change where we are today, this is about a one in 1,000 year event. However, if we exceed the goal, the temperature rise goal that was set in the Paris Climate Accords, if we exceed that, if we don't meet our benchmarks um, and that those accords, this would go from being a one in 1,000 year event to a one every five or 10 year event over the next several decades. So it's By really the way, it hit like terrifying. 115, just so everybody understands. Well, it hit and, like 115 and in the Pacific Northwest. And hundreds of people Northwest. died. That's right. Because yeah. um, this part of, them don't of the have world- AC. Yeah. People didn't need AC because this wasn't a part of the world that's supposed to get to 100 degrees, let alone 115 degrees. The previous record was 106, by the way. Yeah, an area that shattered it. 
caught on fire. I mean, this is this is horrific and lives were lost. So, you know, this idea that we've had for a long time of like climate change is coming. It's coming. We got to get our act together because it's coming. You look at this shit. I mean, it's here. Mm-hmm. We're living. Yeah. And increasingly, there are going to be parts of the world, and this is the where the wet bulb thing comes in, that are literally unlivable for human beings. Yeah. So this is something that, you know, I learned about recently, and I've been fascinated by it since. So there's this thing called the wet bulb temperature. And uh, the idea behind it is the human body can only uh, resist and cool itself off up to a certain temperature. And the real killer here is that uh, when you have heat and humidity together, the humidity actually plays a huge role in this because sweating is your body's mechanism of cooling itself off. Right. And when you hit a certain level of humidity uh, and you sweat, basically you're boiling in your own sweat. Like that's what ends up happening with this wet bulb temperature. is so saturated with water already. Right. That that it can't can't absorb and evaporate more of your moisture on your body. That's right. It just sits there rather than evaporating and cooling you. So now here's the even scarier part. It's lower than you would think. It's lower than you would think. So it's, I believe it's 85 degrees with 95% humidity or more. 88 degrees. Okay, it's 88 degrees? Yeah. 88 with 95% or more. And then once you get to 95 degrees with 95% humidity or more, that is super deadly. Now, they do go on to say, and this is because I know a lot of people are thinking, like, what are you talking about? It's it's like throughout the summer in Phoenix, it's always over 100 degrees. So what are you talking about? They make clear that when you're talking about dry heat, it's not nearly as dangerous because then the mechanism with this, like sweating actually works in that scenario where you can cool yourself off. So you could withstand a lot more dry heat, which is why, if you think about it, 90 degrees in dry heat versus 90 degrees in humid heat is way different, way different. I've experienced both, you know, live in the Northeast. We have very humid summers. I've been to, you know, the Southwest and uh, 90 degrees feels like 75 with humidity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's a lot different. But anyway, now there are going to be places all around the world that regularly hit the wet bulb temperature. And so these places are going to be uninhabitable for human beings. And they say a lot of it is South Asia is a place where a lot of this is going to happen. They do say that uh, even in the Middle East, by the end of the century, it's going to be too hot for for humans to live there. But not because of the wet bulb temperature, because it's dry heat there. But it'll just be too hot even with the dry heat for humans to live there. So what we're talking about, guys, is in the not-too-distant future, not-too-distant future, we're going to have, you think there's like a migration crisis now? There's an immigration crisis now. What do you do when certain parts of Asia all have to empty out and the Middle East has to empty out because people can't live there? And then what do you do when there are wars over water and natural resources like that? Because guess what? Uh, Right now, even the Southwest U.S. is running out of water. The Southwest U.S., that's like 37% uh, capacity of where it should be. So a lot of scary stuff, man. This is not... And and by the way, with the wet bulb temperature, they say... Even perfectly healthy people could die yeah. if they're in that temperature for let too long, and it could be elderly, out of nowhere. Let alone babies, let alone children, let alone people who have some medical condition. Right. And, yeah, it's one thing when you're talking about, um, you know, these extreme temperatures in wealthy areas in the U.S. and Canada where— 
you know, if people don't have air conditioning most of the time, not always, we have our own homelessness problems, which we could solve if we wanted to. But this is a choice that we allow people to go without air conditioning in a wealthy country like the U.S. When you talk about developing world areas where, you know, the people and the government don't have the capacity to pro provide air conditioning. And then you also think about, um, you know, the situation we had in Texas. And wasn't there also a question in New York of whether the power grid was going to be support able to support the air conditioner levels recently, too? But certainly in Texas, we've had these breakdowns in the electrical grid where it's like, yeah, we're not really prepared for these for them, cold they temperatures they in the winter. Yeah, they didn't winterize. Or, no, but just recently, there were questions about the Texas grid failing because people were using their air conditioner. Remember you saw this article yeah. about they were changing to 80-something degrees. They were changing, yeah. automatically changing people's thermostats in their homes to try to reduce the burden on the grid. So you have an electrical grid, even in a wealthy nation like ours, that isn't um, up to snuff to handle these types of temperatures and and it's a really ugly situation. You also have indications that, you know, some of the um, refugees and migrants that we are receiving at our border right now are arguably because of climate crisis, because you had a number of hurricanes that hit one after right, another after right. another yeah. mm -hmm. in the Northern Triangle countries that made some of that area, you know, totally unlivable and decimated what people had and left it so that you couldn't feed your kids, that you couldn't earn a living whatsoever. So, um, really, this this sort of climate crisis migration is already underway. That's right. That's right. And I mean, shit, we we should have acted on this decades ago, but here we are. Here we, and here we are with Exxon Mobil calling the fucking shots on this infrastructure bill and getting their entire wish list met. They didn't want to have climate change provisions put into the bill. And guess what? They got stripped down. And we're being fed this line now about, oh, you're going to get what you want in the reconciliation package, please. But I heard Joe Biden is the next FDR. Mm, I heard that, too. Yeah. So I'm holding out hope. I'm sure it's going to be fine, guys. Right. Exactly. Um, finally, this was really important and uh, we wanted to bring it to you. You know, there's been... Very interesting developments post-pandemic of workers maybe feeling and having a little bit modicum more of power in their workplaces. You've got um, a lot of job openings that are going unfilled. You have workers who at least got, you know, a couple little checks in their bank account, at least got some unemployment insurance when they were tossed out of their jobs through no fault of their own. Um, and so... Now you have starting to be a few little a few worker actions significantly popping up around the country that I think could be a sign of things to come. The most recent one we wanted to highlight for you was uh, the workers at Frito Lay. I think this is in uh, Topeka, Kansas. Is that right? Uh, yes, it's in. I think it's in Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, we'll check on that first. Watch the video of what they had to say about why these workers have gone on strike. This is a strike for our lives. We get no days off, 12 hour days, no time with our families, and we get no good pay. We haven't had a raise in years. You have people in this building that's been here for over 25 years, and I've been here for 37. And they are still forcing those people and myself 12 hours a day, seven days a week. They were working for home. Half of HR couldn't be seen for most of the weeks. But we had to be there 12 hours a week, seven days a week. It's unfair to these people that got kids, that got families that live out here. 
used to be a luxury to work here. But anymore, when you tell people that you work at this place, they just call you a slave. We toured this in fifth grade even. They, they said, hey, you can, you'll be happy to work here someday. Of course, that was before all the uh, horrible working conditions and the uh, lack of pay. So you leave at 7 p.m. and they want you back in here at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's not fair. We need time with our families. We need time with our children. People that work seven days a week, 12-hour shifts, sometimes they have to pull suicide, which is you're off at 11 a.m., but you have to come back at uh, 7 p.m. When we had the ice storm, we were in here, day in, day out. And all we got was some little lamps filled with kerosene to warm us up, and that didn't do anything in the warehouse. One person already had heat exhaustion, like, within a day, like, of the higher temperatures hitting. And this was at night. Couldn't leave the line, they didn't, no one came for breaks, no one helped them out. Management kept, said you gotta keep this line going and get it back up. They ended up wheeling them out that day. We have gone six full years with nothing. Actually seven because this is drug out a year. And then they offered us, for this new contract, they offered us a dime the first year, nothing the second year, and a dime the third year. So that would mean we would be going nine years with 20 cents. You know, everything goes up, you know, milk, gas, everything. Our wages aren't going up. We can't survive like this. They are greedy. The CEO is making millions, yet we are making nothing, getting, getting cents in raises. This is not fair. This is not something that we wanted to do. This is something that we had to do. Nobody wants to go on strike. Nobody wants to sit out here making a spectacle of ourselves. But we will if we have to, if we want fair wages, if we want to be respected when we walk in the building, if we want the training site of Topeka to be a little bit better, we'll do this as long as we have to. So that's from uh, More Perfect Union. I've been following a lot of their, they've been doing a lot of really good videos, a really, lot of good work, um, highlighting struggles just like this one. 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's insane. It's completely insane. I literally did not know that was legal. I didn't know that was legal. I thought that there had to be some rules around that or you know, mandatory overtime pay over a certain line, right, with hours worked? It's a good question. Um, it, and it's very possible that, you know, the way that they're doing it is through sort of like underhanded threats and intimidation. Right. Because this is the way that, you know, a lot of labor law is skirted is they're not technically saying you got to come in 12 hours a but day. But they're seven, saying you got to come in. If you yeah. want to stay, keep, in the, keep that job, then you're going to be there because they feel like they've got however many workers behind you ready to come in and get this, you know, factory job in a place that I don't actually know about the economy of Topeka, Kansas, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. But a lot of times these are in factories and towns where there isn't a lot of other economic opportunity. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that should be done in response to this. Now, by the way, I bet management would say, hey, these people make, I think they make about $15 an hour. Mm. So they would say, hey, listen, you're making your 15 so just shut up and do the work, is basically what I think the management would say. Uh, just so everybody understands, uh, the CEO of the company, so 
the the parent company is PepsiCo. Mm. And and you know Frito Lay is under them, but the CEO of PepsiCo makes about fifteen million dollars a year. And so when it comes to, they said six years without any raise, and then in nine years they got a grand total of a twenty cent raise. Like you said, twelve hour shifts, seven days a week. So first of all, what I would do is I think there should be very clear laws about, um, you know, maximum hours that one could work. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I would definitely do that. I would definitely have even stronger overtime rules where you have to get paid triple, maybe double, triple, something like that, you know, in order for for uh, people to continue working. Um, the fact that they don't have proper AC and proper heat in there, mm. like they were alluding to, I would ban that. I'd say you you have to have a temperature between a certain range. This was something you that know? Amazon uh, was notorious for. There was a, a notorious incident where the temperatures in their warehouse was so high that they stationed ambulances outside with the full expectations that workers were going, and they did, drop from heat exhaustion and have I, to be taken to the hospital. I, I mean, would absolutely ban that. That should be unconscionable. I just pulled up what a living wage is in Topeka, Kansas, um, because you hear 15 and you're like, oh, that's pretty good. So if you are a single adult with no kids, living wage is thirteen forty six. So you're barely making it if you got no kids. Mm-hmm. If you've got one kid in Topeka, Kansas, a living wage is twenty seven dollars and sixty six cents. Now, by the according way, to MIT and their yeah. living wage calculator. Yeah, you know, not to toot my own horn here, but this was this is why I always said that my ideal when it comes to the minimum wage is actually not to do one national minimum wage because obviously it's going to be very different in you know rural Arkansas than it is in New York City. So I would have. Uh, tied it to what a living wage is in each individual, either voting district mm-hmm. or county, you know, and it would be, it wouldn't be uniform. It'd be different all over, but effectively it would be a living wage across the board. So that I preferred for this exact reason. That's why I preferred that because yeah, $15 an hour isn't enough in this instance. Now is it? Here's the other thing you can say about this is at least these workers have a union and that enables them. So do they? They I, do. Okay, and that I, enables them to be able to go on strike and stand in solidarity and demand as one cohesive group more from their employer. Most workers at this point in America, because, you know, the unions have been so decimated by right wing politicians, and a lot of help from Democrats as well. They don't really have the ability to take these kinds of actions and demand more. Um, But it's it's a fascinating moment because you do have this tiny, tiny rebalancing of the scales. I don't want to overstate it, but a little tiny bit of leverage has gone to workers coming out of the pandemic. And politicians, especially on the right, but plenty of Democrats too, freaking out that you would have workers with even a modicum of power able to ask for more, able to hold out for a better job, not just forced back into the same, like, low wage or minimum wage or tipped wage hell that they were before the pandemic. Well, so here's another problem, though, because what management would do if push comes to shove is they'll say, oh, really, you want more money and you want, you know, more time off and you want all this stuff? That's cute. We're going to move the factory. Mm-hmm. That's what they would do. That's if it gets if they're barking up their tree too much. That's what they would do, and that's, that's where what you need to have are laws that either ban 
outsourcing or strictly, strictly penalize it in that you're incentivizing the factory to stay there because if they move the factory, they'll actually end up making less money and the bottom line will be worse and off. And this is where right-to-work laws are also so pernicious because um, Boeing, for example, there was some labor unrest at uh, one of their factories, I think, in Washington, and which is not a right-to-work state, and you had a unionized workforce there, and they said, no problem. We're going to go to South Carolina. You're right. Yeah. And of course, I think Nikki Haley was governor at the time, gave them all sorts of tax incentives yep. to move. Now they don't have to deal with a labor union. They have non-unionized workforce. So these right to work laws, which are obviously a misnomer, create right a sort to work of, for less, create a sort of race to the bottom, even within the country, even when when companies stay within the nation's borders, that makes ultimately everybody worse off, which again, not to, you know, beat my drum on this, but that's why the PRO Act would be so incredibly important. And oh, by the way, have you noticed that Joe Biden hasn't talked about it once in months? Right to work states are really right to work for less. And if we're being honest, you could call them scab states. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. You know, so yes, in order for in order for it to work, in order for the workers to actually have power, you need workers to unite across the board. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it needs to be an across the board thing where nobody's really holding out. And then you really have power in a situation like that. The other thing, you know, that really struck me, and it's sad that this is so noteworthy in like an American political context, is this incredibly diverse group of people that they spoke to in this video. Right, like, yeah. Old, young, black, white, native born, yep. immigrant, just yep. totally across 600 the board. workers, 600. And that's that's the other reason why having a strong labor movement is so incredibly important because it's one of the only remaining spaces where you have that. Kind of, I guarantee a lot of those people have different politics oh, with one another. Yeah. Some of them are watching Rachel Maddow. Some of them are watching, you know, Tucker yeah. Carlson. Some of them are not watching any politics whatsoever. Um, but because they have this really super tangible aligned interests, there they are working together, fighting and organizing for something that's really important for them and their families collectively and also their communities. When you're in a union like that, all the other issues, you put them to the side and you stand side by side with your brothers and your sisters and and you, you know, it, let's say somebody's gay and somebody's, you know, super religious and maybe a little homophobic or whatever it is. All these differences, you know, in that instance, when it mm -hmm. comes to we want to get more pay, we want to get more time off, that shit goes right out the yeah, window and you go, you know, you you hook arms and you stand there and you're together. And that there is a, a deep lesson in that for politics, isn't there? Yeah. That like, you know, if you build the class solidarity, it can sort of override a lot of the other things that are holding us back. And that's not to say those things don't matter because they definitely do. But it's a lot easier to change minds when you're actually engaging. on the same page and engaging. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So true. Um, guys, really excited to get to this conversation with Ismael Lee. He is the policy director for MAPS. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Let's get right to it. Ismael, thank you so much. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Of course. Um, let's just start with the basics of what MAPS is and what work you're doing there. Absolutely. So MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a lot of syllables. Um, it is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was founded in 1986, shortly after MDMA, the active ingredient in ecstasy, was criminalized by the DEA about 15 years after the Controlled Substances Act was passed. So for the last 35 years now or so, 
uh, MAPS has been working in the realm of research and education um, and clinical trials to show some of the beneficial uses of psychedelics for use in safe, legal, responsible contexts. So my role at MAPS right now is policy counsel, and I'm acting policy director at the moment, which basically means that I work to eliminate barriers to psychedelic research, therapy, and so on, and also build out some of the infrastructure for what we might call a post-prohibition world, a world where we're moving past the current drug control scheme, specifically as it relates to psychedelics. So as you just stated, uh, 1986 MDMA was criminalized. That's ecstasy. Um, mm -hmm. And that was 15 years after the Controlled Substances Act was passed. Um, could you walk everybody through a little bit the um, perhaps the history in this country of drug laws? I know that I think the first drug laws were like in the 19 teens, was it? Mm -hmm. Well, it kind of depends on how you characterize drug laws. So. Yes, if you look at just laws on the books that are criminalizing uh, certain substances within the United States, then really we're actually looking back to the late 1800s with the Chinese Exclusion Act and Opium Acts that were pretty much directly targeted at Chinese migrants in the late 1800s that were here to build out the railroads. Uh, shortly after, we have the well-known move to ban cannabis, which happened in the early 1930s. That was really focused around issues regarding the Mexican-American border and its use by Mexican people as well. Um, and that's where you have the beginning of the Marijuana Tax Act and some of these things that started to soft criminalize some of these substances. Um, and then you flash forward about another 30, 40 years later, you hit the 60s, the 70s. And by 1971, you get to the Controlled Substances Act, which kind of builds out the current scheme. It's important to put this in context, though. Um, I think that for most of human history, these substances have been traded and not criminalized. So it was really a move that the United States pushed in the late 1800s that kind of slowly knocked over the dominoes of other countries that built out what's now an international drug control scheme that's enforced at the UN level and then at the country level. I would also even go back a little bit further and say that there is a significant influence in early colonization on these drug laws. So, for example, although we don't have laws on the books formally in the United States until the late 1800s, it's absolutely true that use of a lot of these substances, especially psychedelic ones in particular, sacred, ceremonial, traditional context use, was actually criminalized as early as the moment the Spanish landed or shortly after the Spanish landed in the quote unquote new world. So we kind of see this legacy of colonization, which started by repressing these uses of substances early, early on, you know, 400 plus 500 years ago, that then built out the groundwork for what would become the drug control scheme, which we know today. Mm. Yeah. So so just to underscore that point, because I mm -hmm. think it's really important and I think a lot of people don't know this. I think the assumption from a lot of people is like, well, maybe the way they came up with the drug laws is like a bunch of scientists and doctors got in a room and they <laughs> said, hey, here are the ones that are too dangerous for consumption. Here are the ones that are OK. So now we're going to create this scale based on that logic. And that is just nowhere near what actually happened. And like you pointed out. Um, you had banning of opium was tied directly to anti-Chinese racism. This is a mm -hmm. fact of history because, listen, from what I've read on it, you could tell me if I'm wrong. It's like uh, the white families didn't want their daughters mingling with the Chinese in the opium dens because they felt like, oh, they're going to get taken advantage of or something. And then You're you basically had— not wrong. <laughs> 
And, and then you have the, like you said, marijuana was tied to uh, anti-Mexican racism, criminalizing that. And then uh, the Nixon White House with the war on drugs admitted, hey, one, the reason why we're doing this is really politics. We want to make sure that we criminalize the lifestyle of minorities and, and white hippies. So all this stuff exactly. is on the record. And when people see it, it really blows their mind. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah. Throwing it to you. Mm. <laughs> Um, well, I was going to ask you to elaborate, Ismael, on a little more of what you said. Like, with the Spanish colonizers, mm -hmm. why did they care? And a lot of the drugs that they were fearful of or sought to eradicate or criminalize were psychedelics. Why did they care? Why were they concerned about this? Yeah, so if you look at some of the early accounts of the Spanish, um, whether it was kind of colonizers that were there for economic reasons or they were there for religious reasons, there were a lot of people there that were, that were there on behalf of the Catholic Church in addition to the Spanish crown itself and other colonial powers as well. Um, you kind of see this, th there's a couple things that are happening at the same time. One is this really dramatic infantilization of the indigenous people that are here. Um, and this idea, and you actually see, quote, you can find quotes that are like, they're just singing and playing and, you know, they have this idea that because they don't live in this hyper-industrialized society or what Europe saw as a, you know, getting closer to industrialized society in the 14 and 1500s. Um, there was this sense that they were more primitive. They were savages. There's a lot of these terms that kind of are built out of those early days. So to, I believe that the perspective that kind of Spanish colonizers, the Catholic Church and others had, had to do with the idea that, oh, they're eating these substances, they have these this relationship with nature, this is a natural, or if it's natural, it's some earlier stage. So I think it has a lot to do with this concept that uh, Christianity, that Europeanism, that all of these things were here to actually bring progress to the indigenous people, as if the indigenous people were somehow behind on some scale. So I think that the original criminalization of a lot of these substances and the the repression of these practices, which then d did lead to these practices being held underground or turning into kind of syncretic formats where they kind of meld with other formats of religion that were more permitted, came out of this idea that these practices were satanic or demonic, like this idea of communing with nature, of communing in community, separate, very different from the understanding of religion that especially, especially the Catholic Church had, um, was seen as a threat. So you actually see a what I would call like kind of a cultural chilling effect that was one of the results of this mass cultural genocide that occurred in the early 1500s, 1600s um, related to the use of these substances. And not just the use of these substances, obviously it's well documented that a number of practices, cultural practices and otherwise were genocided or were significantly impacted by these early settlers. But on the topic of these substances in particular, that this was just one piece, you know, communing around nature with, you know, taking peyote or eating mushrooms or whatever. These are things that were seen as being kind of savage old world paradigms that needed to change. So that's, I think, that early, early piece. It also seems, Ismail, like just if you are trying to spread a particular religion, and especially if you're talking about the Catholic faith, which has to be like intermediated, you don't have this direct connect exactly. to the spiritual, this direct relationship with God. You look at this experience that people are having, you're like, this is a threat. How can we compete with this? Right? We got to get rid <laughs> totally. of this stuff because what we're offering here doesn't seem nearly as exciting. That's exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah, I, n I never thought of that. I thought that was a great point. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's true. If, if somebody has a competition. psychedelic experience, they really do feel like, oh my God, I touched God. Meanwhile, you go to a Catholic church and you just sit there and hear an old Latin guy. Yeah, yeah, you hear an old guy tell a story that nobody relates to, and you're like, you've got bureaucracy. You've got spiritual bureaucracy in some of these churches. And the right. sub one of the things that these substances offer in certain cases is kind of a cutting out of that bureaucracy. It's like, nope, straight to the source. Let's get to it, which can, you know, comes with all of its own implications. But um, I think that that's absolutely a factor. And at the time, for those of you that, you know, for people that have this, that historical, you know, knowledge, um, the Catholic Church was already in kind of a battle with the Protestant Church, right? That was, it was, there was this big kind of much larger arc that was happening in Europe to exactly, as you said, um, get the followers that they wanted and retain people. And of course, retaining people into spiritual practice and religion is something that goes on today. The difference is that now psychedelics are literally everywhere and they're harder to control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. if you have a direct connection, personal connection to the spiritual, I can see how people would think that was a very dangerous thing, right? Because then it's you're harder to control. You feel like you have your own access to these things that doesn't have to be intermediated through someone else. Yeah. Any religion that feels like it sort of makes intuitive sense to people, I feel like religions like Christianity felt extra threatened by that. You know what I mean? Because it's like, like you said, they sort of have an advantage. If somebody's worshiping aspects of nature, I like, I see how that makes sense. If somebody's having psychedelic experiences and you feel like you're touching God, it's like, I see why somebody would <clears throat> feel more religious after that. But like I said, growing up, I mean, I grew up in the Catholic church and I, you know, at no point did I feel any sort of connection to anything interesting, holy, whatever. And, you know, so anyway, interesting Speaks point. Speaks to some people, didn't they? Yeah, my mom was a nun and didn't speak to us. Yeah, d exactly. Yeah, quite literally. I, I, I um, love this topic because I was, I was, all, my mother was also Catholic and I was raised Muslim. And actually oh, there's really? this whole arc. Yeah, there's this whole arc for me personally around how psychedelics kind of pulled me away from religion and then brought me back. And there's a whole story. And it's true for a lot of people, I think, who, as you said, like suddenly get contact with some sort of divine or mystical experience, as they say in the clinical studies. Um, and then suddenly it affects their worldview in whatever way. So so talk a little bit about um, your your personal use then, if you don't mind, because I'm very interested in how that journey happened. Sure. Yeah. So like so many people, I think of my generation, especially, um, I was introduced to drugs in a context that really focused on their harms, on what, how dangerous they are, kind of like what you were saying earlier, Kyle, around like the quote unquote science of their, of their risks. And while there's no question to me in now or then that there are, of course, risks that come with the use of any of these substances, whether it's psychedelics or other drugs. Um, I definitely started my story being very kind of judgmental and stigmatizing people who use drugs uh, as a younger person, like I'm sure a lot of people did. Um, I actually had a close friend when I was in high school who started experimenting, and I was really upset. I was like so mad at them for trying these drugs that we knew were bad. And I started doing research on my own. And actually what happened is that I discovered Arrowwood.com. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I discovered Arrowwood, which is like a vault, a storehouse of drug experiences on the internet. And I started doing research and kind of dispelled all my own myths. And I started kind of experimenting a bit first with cannabis when I was 15. And I had my first um, experience with psilocybin mushrooms um, when I was 16. So I was pretty young, younger than I think a lot of people think you should be. Uh, when some of these experiences start. And I spent the next you know, few years really experimenting with different substances, different states of being. Um, it was around my early 20s that I came into contact with a relative of mine, actually, uh, who 
had also had a lot of experience with this, but entirely in indigenous cultural context. They had spent a lot of time with um, indigenous folks in Central America and South America and other parts of the world, and who had totally learned about this through the very traditional kind of um, ceremonial context. And meanwhile, I had been like raving and like doing whatever I could, you know, <laughs> as a younger person. It's a and type it was of really ceremony. It's a type totally. of ceremonial it context. <laughs> it absolutely is. It absolutely. I mean, it's a celebratory context, which is like one of the ways in which people experience these things. And also, it's also a rite of passage to a lot of people. And so many of these substances are used in these kind of rite of passage, ceremonial initiation like context, which is kind of what ends up happening when you do it in the underground where you like it or not. So that really sparked my interest in it broadly. And I also saw a lot of things go really right. I saw a lot of people in my life have really beneficial, beautiful experiences with substances. I also saw things go really wrong. I knew people who overdosed, who died by suicide, who died by a lot of other tragic ways. So I didn't just see like the good, happy-go-lucky side of using drugs. I saw a lot of the harms too. And it was really that that really started to make me think, well, the way that we're taught about drugs, the way that we're learning about drugs is really wrong. Maybe if we learn something more accurate, something more on point, I would be safer, my friends would be safer, the people who I see who are more vulnerable than I am, who are really struggling with their use of substances might be safer too. So that's kind of what motivated me to start moving toward drug policy as a career choice and as something that I felt was really important for this like broader conversation about social and political change. And do you mind talking about how that overlaps with the spiritual journey that you referenced? You said it kind of pushed you away from religion and then brought you back to religion. Can you just speak to that piece if you don't mind? Yeah, no, I don't. I, I appreciate this question because I think it's something that's true for a lot of people who um, are also disillusioned, not just by what they learn about drugs, but also what they learn about religion. I think a lot of people are taught religion in this very um, kind of static, non-dynamic way, which just means that they end up believing that religion is this like rigid set of rules and policies that if you don't, uh, you don't listen to or follow, then you're definitely going to hell or something like that. So I think there's kind of a parallel where like the way I was taught religion was like kind of strict in certain ways, although I did grow up in a very um, devout but not dogmatic Islamic household. I feel grateful to be around a lot of different religious identities and cultural identities. Um, I'm half Colombian on my mom's side, the Catholic side, unsurprisingly, and Pakistani on my dad's side. So I grew up in a very mixed household with a lot of that kind of dynamism already happening. Um, and yeah, but I, at the same time, I was very skeptical about organized religion and kind of doubting that it could really be a transformatively positive force. Um, I discovered psychedelics, started engaging with those, exactly as you said earlier, Crystal, like suddenly had these direct experiences of a divine something. And I was like, wait a minute, like we don't need all this bureaucracy. We can just go straight to the source. Um, and it was over the course of my early 20s that I kind of continued to um, learn about how substances like psychedelics were used in the sacramental context. And a big part of the arc of my older, you know, of my late 20s and early 30s has been how do I actually incorporate these different practices? Because there are benefits to structure, to community, to eating together, to praying together. Like those are things that are consistent across history, time and communities and different religious expressions. Um, the question is like, what happens when you add this kind of mystical intervention into it? And I actually never, for example, never stopped fasting for Ramadan, even though I always thought, you know, even though in my early days uh, or late teens, I was really secular and really skeptical because I figured, you know, maybe there's something about fasting, you know, as a practice that's actually good for me. And um, I just finished my, you know, 18th year of fasting for Ramadan, even though, you know, I fall in and out of, am I Muslim? Is that something that I identify with? Um, and a lot of a lot of that has been informed by my experience with psychedelics and the way that 
they have really allowed me to see my own religious spiritual practice from a variety of different perspectives, as well as bring a lot more compassion and understanding to that of other people. So uh, tell me a little bit about um, which psychedelics you've looked into or are looking into. Um, you know, there's a, I'm obviously MDMA, LSD, peyote, ibogaine, DMT, psilocybin. Like, talk to me about mm -hmm. those. I mean, we can talk about literally any of those. <laughs> now, I'll start with by saying that MAPS's research, um, our, our kind of uh, thrust of our research has been with MDMA. Um, and we just published in Nature Medicine uh, the results of our first phase three MDMA for PTSD trial, which mm. is part of the drug development studies that we're taking through the FDA right now with the intention of making FD, or excuse me, MDMA a prescribable medication in the next couple of years. So the goal there is to really kind of undermine this perception that uh, the criminalization of psychedelics is based in uh, science, because right now it's not, and kind of bringing some of that science and evidence to it to have actual evidence, not, not just to show evidence, but actually bring it into a healthcare context where it can be used and its benefits could be maximized. So MAPS's focus has really primarily been on MDMA as far as our drug development goes. However, We've done quite a bit of uh, sponsorship. We sponsored observational research also with uh, some of those substances you mentioned. So I think ibogaine, ayahuasca, LSD, um, maybe peyote um, in the past or mescaline in the past. And what you know, what we found and what I think has been emerged over the, this kind of new wave of psychedelic science is that each of these substances has a slightly different kind of imprint. They work slightly differently. Their therapeutic benefit or risks are slightly different. So I would say pick one and let's talk about any of them because so, I'm, I'm happy to go down the rabbit hole. So let's start with MDMA. First of all, mm -hmm. is it fully psychedelic? Because I've, I think I've heard different things on that. I'm curious what the answer is. And then how did it work in alleviating anxiety, depression, PTSD, or any of those issues? Yeah, this is a great question. So I'll start with the one about is it a psychedelic? Because I think this to me is kind of a similar question to is cannabis a psychedelic or right. what is a yeah. psychedelic? Um, and the word itself, as you might know, comes from the uh, root uh, Greek, two Greek phrases that mean essentially mean mind manifesting. Um, the other word that you sometimes hear used to describe psychedelics is entheogens, which is something that means that it inspires or brings out the divine within. Um, MDMA is what I think some people call an intactogen or empathogen. So it's a psychedelic which actually has mind manifesting effects or manifesting effects on an emotional level. People usually associate psychedelics with hallucinogens or drugs that actually affect visual formats. You're like seeing stuff and whatever. And that's certainly true for some psychedelics, but our definition of psychedelic is slightly broader. That actually includes this um, emotional and sometimes spiritual effect, which may or may not come with visuals. And in the case with MDMA, it usually doesn't. MDMA is usually a pretty stable substance and it's uh, associated more with amphetamines, which is a class of substances that really fall outside of the realm of visionary trippy things most of the time. Gotcha. So, yeah. Go ahead. You're probably going to go on to talk about what you found in the in the trials, which I think both of us covered on our shows and yeah. like was incredibly yeah. promising. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can just summarize it then, which is to say that what we found is that um, in our phase two and then in this confirmatory phase three trial uh, that we just published, we found that after MDMA therapy, um, about 67 or 68 percent of people no longer qualify for having PTSD. Wow. And there's a couple ways that, you know, we've interpreted that that works. And I will note that FDA research doesn't usually require mechanism of action, which just means that to put, take a drug through FDA, you don't actually need to know how it works. You just need to know that it's safe 
and that it works. Um, but with MDMA, we sometimes use the phrase uh, memory reconsolidation to describe what happens. So it reduces the effect of the amygdala, which mitigates fear, and it increases compassion. And, you know, there's kind of a stereotype of or kind of a trope of people taking MDMA or ecstasy and being really huggy and friendly and loving and whatever. Um, I think that that's true because it does increase compassion and empathy. And usually when you're like in a club or a party or celebratory setting, that just goes outward. Yeah. The way MDMA therapy works is that it's actually done with a therapist or with a facilitator who actually, it kind of acts as a mirror and allows you to put that empathy and that compassion back toward yourself. So it's actually a process of, um, you're not, unlike other psychiatric medications that are more based on repress, repressing memories or affecting the chemical makeup of one's brain, MDMA therapy, and this is true of a lot of psychedelic therapy in general, is really about opening up channels internally seeing whatever that trauma or whatever the root cause of that harm is and engaging with that in a really, really active, intentional way. So it's more like a surgical intervention. It's not like palliative. You don't do it every day for the rest of your life like you might with an SSRI. It's actually more of a short period of time, maybe two or three administrations of the medicine total. So after only two or three administrations of the medicine total with therapy before, in between, and after for preparation and integration, which are crucial parts of this, um, that is how these results come out. So we like to say that the actual benefit is really in the therapy that the MDMA makes easier because it's mm -hmm. really about like getting to that root stuff. Yeah. Well, only two or three administrations of the medicine. I mean, that doesn't sound very profitable. So I don't <laughs> know how this is going to work out in America, which actually is a whole separate thing I want to get into with you. Yeah. But first, if you could tell me a little bit more about how these studies are conducted. Because one thing you said that I think is really important is it's not like you're just giving people MDMA and then evaluating the results. This is done in a therapeutic context. So how do you do that in a way that is scientifically consistent so that you're able to get reliable results? Yeah, one of the ways is pretty straightforward because it's just part of the scientific method, which is controlling as many variables as possible. <laughs> so the first thing is, I mean, and this might go without saying, but because we're doing clinical trials, we're using um, substance that's completely pure uh, or close mm. to pure. And that's a big deal because a lot of people who are getting ecstasy or MDMA um, in the underground are usually getting something that's adulterated in some way or another. And that's a function of prohibition. So maybe there's a version of reality in the future where we have legal regulated access where people, even without diagnosis, can also access MDMA. But for now, as long as we're in the current drug control paradigm, there isn't a guarantee that anything that's bought in the underground is pure. So starting with a pure substance, I think, is a big part of it and kind of um, more difficult to achieve in certain contexts, especially in the underground than others. The other is exactly, as you said, this kind of therapeutic container. So the MDMA for a PTSD protocol is actually, I think, 12 to 15 sessions total, which includes three sessions before, three sessions at the very end, and then three sessions in between each of the administrations. So we're talking about you know, something like four, three to four months of therapy with, a, you know, a dozen sessions, only two or three of which have MDMA with them, which is where a lot of the deeper happens. But you're definitely doing work before to prepare, you're setting intentions, you're mapping out what, you know, things are causing harm or things are causing an impact. And then after you're integrating them, so people sometimes talk about their downloads or the amazing things that they learn while they're tripping on psychedelics. Well, that's only really useful if you actually learn how to integrate those learnings into your day to day. And sometimes that's easier than others when it's like, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe I should have a morning routine and that's going to make my life better. Like, that's something that's not always easy for people to do. And maybe it's something really big, like, oh, I should leave my job or I should do this. One piece of advice for anyone watching, it's really important not to make big decisions 
any two weeks in the two weeks after you take a psychedelic because sometimes mm-hmm. it can really affect your way of thinking, which is sometimes a really good thing, but it's good to integrate that into where you're actually at. And I think that's the that's the level a lot of people skip. So I think that that's the part where when it comes to MDMA as a modality, yes, it's true that it's this you know amazing substance that can increase compassion and empathy and so on. But part of the reason it, it's beneficial for highly sensitive people with real mental health disorders is not just because it's a great drug that does a lot of stuff. It's also because it's done in a really safe, responsible environment with support. So um, you mentioned that the research is MDMA um, in regards to PTSD. Is there any information about anxiety or depression? Or is that, I think there was a psilocybin study on that going on somewhere. So just speak on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, so we have done some other uh, studies with MDMA. We've done um, a conjoined therapy study, which is two people, you know, a couple where one of the people has PTSD. Uh, I think we're studying MDMA for eating disorders, social anxiety for adults with autism, for end-of-life anxiety. Mm. Um, There's a few other, you know, potential indications or potential kind of routes that are being studied. Um, But yes, to your point, the studies that have been really focused for chronic depression or treatment-resistant depression have been primarily with psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And a lot of the studies that are kind of really well-known around depression and also end-of-life anxiety are also with... Folk are, are with psilocybin. Um, so you're kind of on this parallel track where MDMA and psilocybin are both um, very close to each other, actually, timeline wise, with respect to approval through FDA or potential approval through FDA. Um, both receive breakthrough therapy from FDA. There's a lot of promising research with both. Um, the other thing I'll add with psilocybin is smoking cessation. And I think that with psilocybin and other psychedelics especially, um, this may be true with MDMA through the route of trauma treatment because a lot of Um, Substance use disorders are trauma-related, not every single one, but a lot have origins in trauma. So there's a way where working on PTSD can work with substance use disorder. Um, But psilocybin and some other psychedelics, Ibogaine, for example, ayahuasca, LSD, are more well-known for their effects on alcoholism, opioid use disorder, other kinds of substance use disorders that kind of have to do with this, like, fixation or this dependency behavior, because it's really about, like, kind of unweaving those um, channels in one's mind that kind of lead to the same chronic outcome, if that makes sense. The um, indications about easing anxiety around death and sort of people mm-hmm. coming to terms with their own mortality and even potentially loved ones of people who are facing end of life coming to terms with that, you know, incredibly stressful uh, event. What are the theories around why psilocybin seems to help people be able to approach the end of life in a sort of more peaceful way? Yeah, this is a great question. And before answering it, I'll actually give a shout out to some of my colleagues, um, Sunil Agarwal and um, Catherine Tucker and some other folks who are currently in a um, in, in a suit about this because there's a doctrine in the United States called right to try, which basically allows um, a patient to use a substance, um, a drug, a, an investigational new drug or whatever that has gone through phase one trials, um, which psilocybin has to treat something if they're terminal or if they're near their end of their life. Um, And right now, psilocybin does not, it technically should fall under that list because it has gone through phase one, but as of now, no one has been able to access psilocybin um, in an end of life context, in like an emergency context. Um, So so some folks are in a process of engaging with the DEA and the DOJ about that um, and to say like, hey, if it's true that 
these investigational new cancer drugs can be used, and why can't we use this other thing that we know has a really strong safety profile and has gone through the requisite studies? So I want to start with that because there's an ongoing kind of fight around this in the United States, or an ongoing kind of tension around like how do we um, encourage and allow for use in appropriate contexts for people who we know are safe to do it, and this is particular important in the context of medical aid and dying. Or you have you have a state where someone can, if they're terminal, end their life if they so choose voluntarily, uh, with support. Why can't they take mushrooms? You know, it's like wait, wait, wait. It's like what 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 are we allowing people to do or not allowing people to do? So yeah, so the the mechanism that I think you're describing that that is suspected at this time has, and you know, there's different perspectives on it. But I'll start with the thing that we've already been talking about, which is this idea of the mystical experience. Like, what is a mystical experience, and why does that affect someone's anxiety around death? I think one of the things that psilocybin can offer people is a level of um, comfort and uh, it, because it reduces the fear of the unknown. Um, and I think especially because high doses of psilocybin can actually induce something called ego death, which is where the psyche, the mind actually thinks that it's dying, which can be kind of scary if you don't know what's going on or you're not prepared for it. But that process of, uh, you know, having this psychological death or the psychological ending, it sounds really intense, but it's something that can be done totally physically safety, safely when done with the right kind of support in the right set and setting with guidance and, and, um, and support really means that people who come out of that experience suddenly actually are less anxious about their own actual death. And I think that, again, this has to do with this idea of some sort of like mystical, which to me just means like some sort of like altered state experience that shows someone that life is bigger than just the experience of their consciousness, which sounds a little bit heady, I know. But I think it's this idea that there's more than what I can understand as an individual in my own consciousness. And I think that kind of zoomed out perspective can make a really big difference. Sometimes I compare it to, you might remember in the 60s, there was this moment where like that image of the earth from space was published. It was like this mm. really famous moment where like suddenly all humans have this different perspective, like, wow, we're a Whoa. little blue rock in space. I think it's something kind of like that for the human psyche, where, I mean, you kind of zoom out and you're like, wait a minute, like, I'm not just my body, like, I'm my consciousness. And maybe death is the next big adventure instead of something terrifying. Of course, I'm simplifying it. There's no doubt that it's still scary to certain people in certain contexts, but course. I think that's part of it. I mean, I think anybody can relate to when they're going through like some personal drama or work drama or whatever and then they go camping or they stare at the stars or they go hiking they have some kind of or they go to church and have an experience sure. a religious experience that gives them a sense of a connection to the profound and to a context that's bigger than just their ego and their life and the thing that they're going through right there and obviously like death is you know the end all be all in terms of things that people can go through um but it seems to me intuitively to make sense that if these substances help you connect in a deep way to the profound and to that bigger context that not only could it help ease end of life anxiety, but it also seems like that would make sense for things like smoking cessation. I know I read mm -hmm. in um, Michael Pollan's book about this recently that, you know, people who had success quitting smoking, which tobacco is one of the most addictive drugs on Definitely. the planet, they would say just it just didn't seem like that important anymore. It just didn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. Having that larger context helped them be able to to do something that they had previously been unable to do. 
Definitely. I'm glad you mentioned tobacco because I just have to put in a little plug for the fact that tobacco was actually a very revered and is actually a very revered sacred plant in indigenous communities across South and North America and Central America. So tobacco is actually a really interesting example of something that started out as like a sacred tool, as like a mm. substance with real benefit and real focus, you know, real, um, I should say, uh, purpose for use, where it was used in prayer, used in community building. And it was kind of like thrown into the uh, industrial uh, machine in the in the 16, 1700s and turned into this like consumer product. But tobacco is a really interesting example because there's this process like with psychedelics of trying to re-indigenize or re-culture, bring the culture and to back to something like tobacco, which looks mm. so kind of now the worst example of like a bad consumer product, you know? So it's interesting that you use that example because I think that there is something to be said about our relationship with plants, with these substances broadly, that was kind of ruptured that people are slowly trying to start to come back to. Yeah, I, uh, I actually smoked for a really long time. I smoked for probably seven or eight years. And so yeah, for me, it was just... I'm an asshole and I wanted to look cool in high school and I started so how a lot sort of people start you, you sort of force your way through the first like three packs but then by the time you get to the fourth one you're like now I like this thing and so then you know you're off to the races but yeah it, you make a good point because you know in the context of modern society you think of cigarettes and you think of like the 900 carcinogens or whatever is in it where I'm sure back in the day when it was used for religious purposes I'm sure the pure tobacco on its own is a lot better than having, you know, cigarettes that are jam-packed full of carcinogens. Um, totally. So I want to, uh, you mentioned there uh, Ibogaine and said that and maybe some of the other substances mm -hmm. are good in terms of uh, breaking cycles of addiction. That's something I have heard before as well. Um, one of the ones I don't know nearly as much on, and I'm curious if you do know of any studies going on with this one, is peyote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can say a couple things. So first with Ibogaine, um, I just want to make sure that people know that Ibogaine is one of the psychedelic substances that likely has one of the highest um, like physical risks. So most of the psychedelics that we're talking about, psilocybin, LSD, have a very, very low physical risk profile. There's certain, certainly psychological risks, and that's where the guidance and the support really matters. Um, but Ibogaine specifically has risk to the heart. Um, and I say this because it's it's often interpreted or seen as kind of a silver bullet for people who are dealing with opioid use disorder. Right. And although it definitely has, there's a lot of anecdotal and observational research that shows that it can interrupt opioid addiction. Um, I don't want to give the, I don't want to perpetuate the impression that it's like a thing that you can just take once and you're good to go. Um, it, it has extremely high risk, needs to be done in a very controlled medical environment when it's used, especially for detox the drug detox. And I just want to put that plug in for people who are interested because it is a really powerful substance with a lot of potential benefits. And it's something that needs to be used very, very carefully and responsibly. And I just want to like mention that before going on. Sure. Um, peyote is an interesting one because it's, it's really difficult to talk about peyote without talking about its political context. Um, peyote was, is definitely one of the psychedelic substances that has the longest known history of use, which is to say that there are indigenous communities in especially Central America, um, as well as kind of in the Mexico-Texas border area that have been utilizing um, peyote for literally thousands of years. So most of the time when you hear like, oh, people have been using psychedelics for thousands of years, they're mostly talking about this. Other substances like ayahuasca and ibogaine do have an extensive history of use in traditional indigenous contexts. 
Um, but as far as I know, nothing like peyote and mushrooms. Mushrooms are arguably being used all over the world um, a long time ago as well. But I say that because peyote is kind of a, I see it as kind of like a, a canary in the coal mine, canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. for, for a lot of issues with respect to plant medicines and plant substances in indigenous context specifically. So, you know, the research that's been done, I think, has more to do. So first off, it has more to do with the underlying uh, molecule in it, mescaline, which was, I think, the first psychedelic to be um, synthesized or isolated in the late 1800s. Um, and mescaline is kind of seen as the uh, kind of pinnacle or like the most quintessential example of a psychedelic substance because it has euphoria, it creates visual effects, it creates um, transformational mental experiences and so on. Um, so it's kind of known in that context. Peyote has also been used in these very, very uh, well-guarded spiritual traditions for a very long time, and especially leading into the early, or excuse me, late 1800s and early 1900s, as it started to become more known and used and visible with uh, Native American folks in North America and the U under in the U.S. border. Um, you saw the creation of the Native American Church, which occurred formally in the early 1900s, although it's kind of like I mentioned earlier, syncretization of Native American spiritual practice in a format that was more for, um, more understandable to, in this case, like the American legal system. So over the course of the last hundred years or so, the Native American church built out this way of being with peyote in a Native American context that was a formalized religion that dealt with literally dozens, if not hundreds of legal cases over the course of the 1900s which kind of culminated in the early 1990s um, with a Supreme Court case and then the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed by Congress in 1993, uh, which really formalized the Native American church and the religious use of parody in, in American context. So I give all that history because I think there's a lot of fascination and interest with peyote, and I think it's a very interesting substance. But there's been a lot of controversy around it because unlike a lot of other substances like mushrooms, which are cheap to grow and grow everywhere, um, peyote is a very scarce, limited resource. It only mm. grows in a very small part of southern Texas and part like bit, bits of Mexico. Um, and it's a threatened species uh, because of its use in these religious contexts, as well as its use um, and it's poaching and it's illegal kind of harvesting. And the fact that also a lot of it is on private land, it's very hard to get and which makes it very enticing for people who are seeking that experience. And in the last couple of years, people in the psychedelic ecosystem have really been trying to discourage people who aren't part of any of these formal um, religious or spiritual use environments to be seeking them. So I give all of that context because it's really interesting to think about peyote and the research on peyote, which basically boils down to like mescaline being a potentially Therapeutic is really not the word I would use in this case, although I'm sure it has therapeutic benefits, really being like a powerful spiritual transformational tool. But all of that comes out of all of this years of baggage. So, for example, with this bill that uh, MAPS and others have been working on in California, SB 519, the bill actually pulls peyote out. So we're going for decriminalization of mescaline but not from peyote, because we don't actually want to increase the, the risk of peyote loss, peyote habitat loss. Um, so really interesting and also comes with all of these other considerations around ecological, land-based, cultural, you know, traditional use contexts, which I think are actually a big part of the conversation, which is definitely less true with MDMA, which is like a, a synthetic substance that can be created in the lab. 
talk a little bit more about, um, tease out the ideas you were kind of getting out with regards to tobacco, because you have a couple of different tracks for substances in America, right? You've got the like tobacco, alcohol, oxy track, mm-hmm. where it's like, let's get this to as many people as possible. Let's encourage use and abuse. Let's make as much money off these substances as we possibly can. And then on another track, you have, um, prohibition, which of course is the regime for most substances in America at this point, and it's certainly psychedelics and things that you're looking at. Um, What are your concerns around, let's say that psychedelics are uh, decriminalized, are ultimately completely legalized, how, what are your fears around how capitalism takes these substances <laughs> and pushes them on the population and makes it either into, you know, the next tobacco product with Joe Camel or whoever making it cool or puts it as another sort of quiver in the, the um, toolkit of big pharma, pushing it on the population in a different way? How do we prevent that from happening? Yeah, this is a very real concern that I'm really glad you asked about. Um, One of my good friends many years ago told me that legalization is just permission to commodify. And when something hits the commodified market, like you said, it becomes a consumer product. um, And then the value is how much money can you make off of it, not what does it do. Um, And I think that sometimes I think about how uh, weirdly in a twisted way um, lucky we are that the early colonizers didn't see um, substances like peyote or mushrooms as something they could commodify. Um, of course, the genocide and the uh, destruction of those cultural practices is tragic. Um, and I can't even imagine what the world would be like if 500 years of the colonizers were like, let's not, you know, it's not tobacco. Let's figure out how we can make peyote into this consumer product mm-hmm. that everyone can do. You know, I'm just like imagining the, the hell world that we'd be in now. Um, but yeah, this is a very real concern that I have. And I think regarding, you know, capitalism and the entrance of these substances into the kind of commercial market, there's a couple layers. So I'll break it down a bit. First is the pharma question, which is around like healthcare and medicine. And the one is, is more broad. So regarding, um, regarding, well, zipping out a bit, I think that it's first off important to recognize that we're comparing Um, the current status quo of criminalization, incarceration, repression, to one that we, it's it's hard to predict, but I think we can use, as you said, tobacco and other products and other substances as, as examples for what happens when kind of industrial commercialization gets to a, a product or something that people want and that people might want more if you advertise it to them. One of my personal specific biggest fears is this overlap of, you know, we have this whole economy of online psychology-based advertising. And I'm really worried about information about people's psychology being manipulated and used to then feed them ads for substances that they don't need or that aren't really Mm -hmm. good for them because people know that they're vulnerable and they're desperate. There's a lot of very desperate people. And I don't think I, I see that criminalization is not the way to get access to these substances for the, those desperate people on the flip side um it, is it fair or is it right for these substances to be put into this like larger um industrial market i 
I, I this is probably one of the questions that really keeps me up at night because I think that how we how we legalize is a really important question. How we create regulated access is a really important question. Within healthcare, it's 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 a, it's exceptionally difficult. I think in part because the United States operates in you know the healthcare insurance system that we do, which means that if you can't afford insurance or don't have insurance. Then you don't get access to healthcare. So part of the reason of bringing something like MDMA into healthcare, even though it comes with all of this baggage, is that it, we have the hope that it would get covered by insurance, that people would be able to get access to this treatment in that environment. That said, of course, that comes with all of the fears of big pharma pushing something. And even if you zoom out and look at like legal regulated use, um, which you know they're starting to think about in Oregon for psilocybin. Um, and with mushrooms, you really come up against these questions like, well, what happens when it just gets thrown into the normal capitalist economy? I think that there's ways to mitigate some of those harms. And I think some, although cannabis and psychedelics are quite different, I'm very inspired by and have spent a lot of time studying and looking into this movement for social equity within cannabis, which is about legalizing, creating, you know, allowing some of these consumer products to move forward into a market, but doing that in a way that's actually cognizant of the harms of the war on drugs and the harms of criminalization. So in the context of social equity in cannabis, that just means making sure that people who are incarcerated, who are arrested, were impacted by the war on drugs actually have priority access to those economic opportunities. But as I'm sure we all know, economic opportunities is not the end all be all. And a lot of neighborhoods and families were destroyed. And those people may not want to be involved in cannabis sales, so they shouldn't be forced to be to benefit. So there's kind of this movement from social equity to community reinvestment where you're seeing the money that's coming that's being generated out of this new cannabis economy going back to folks who were impacted. I think we can do something like that with psychedelics. It's a little bit of a different scale because as we've talked about, when you zoom out 500 years and you look at literally centuries of harm, it's a little bit more difficult sometimes to be like, well, who should benefit from the creation of this economy? Indigenous people should, but which ones? Or how do we decide or who? So these are all questions that I think actually come to a more a deeper underlying thing, which is the fact that we've moved away from access to social services, from these wraparound treatment services, housing, healthcare, jobs, all of these things, all means that we're in an environment where people are actually very vulnerable, don't have access to care, and to have, don't have access to the substances they need. So although I love the idea and, and working toward the movement to legalize and create legal regulated use for these substances, I don't think it can happen in a vacuum. And I really worry that they'll just become another consumer product while we allow the rest of the world to burn around us. So I think it's really important to think about what are the other social, cultural, political things that need to be moving as we create access to psychedelics, which I think yeah. is about climate justice, housing, job training, support for people who are incarcerated and coming out, support for people who are deployed and coming back. You know, these are all social harms that I think cause trauma, that cause depression, that cause anxiety. And I think that if we're just throwing a thing to band-aid it, even if psychedelics work really, really well, we're still only getting to a surface level of the problem. So to me, this all leads to you know the impression that we need to do something that's even beyond the psychedelics, that's more about this bigger picture social change. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a kind of an impossible question that I asked you because it's like, how do you have a market in American capitalistic <laughs> context that's not hell? And <laughs> given the current sort of like yeah. 
landscape that's it's very difficult i will say and i'm sure you're aware of that there was a um proposal in rhode island with regards to cannabis legalization which both had some of the social equity provisions you were talking about that answer the question of who will benefit so that you actually have um you know black business owners who are in a position it's not just like big tobacco coming in and and hogging up the space but they also wanted to create a co-op sector and to me that got up at the question of not only who will benefit but also what will be the values underlying it because what you're effectively saying here is we need to have some values undergirding this market other than profit. And Definitely. that's something that's very difficult to do in the American capitalist context, but it seems more possible in co-op context where you already have, you know, workers with a democratic voice in the workplace who are connected to the community, who care not just about the bottom line and their own livelihood, but also what's happening in the spaces around them. So- yeah, there's actually there's examples um, to both of your uh, points. There's examples of opposites. So I remember it was either Ohio or Michigan. I think it was Ohio. Years ago, they had a vote on whether or not to legalize marijuana. But when you read the specifics of it, it was like there were one or two businesses that basically had a monopoly and those people had a corrupt connection to like the governor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Definitely. what happened is it, it barely failed. But, you know, a lot of people who are even very pro marijuana were like, good because that would have been a nightmare if it was legalized like that now on the flip side i believe it was in oregon when they legalized marijuana a lot of there's a tax on it and the tax goes to education i think that's one thing they did there and in new york there's that yeah and in new york there's actually and i was surprised when i went through the specifics of the new york bill that legalizes it pretty good because yeah they were pretty good they were like 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 you were uh, describing they sort of gave Small businesses, the first crack at it, and also communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs get the first crack at it. So that's a good example of doing it uh, properly. So, Ismail, I thought you, I think you already answered this question, but I just want to reiterate and sort of, you know, get it a, a little more concrete. Is your position or the position of MAPS officially, would you prefer, like, step one, just make it medicinal, step two, decriminalize it all across the board, or step three, legalize but do it in a way that's intelligent where like ads are banned for example or small businesses get the first crack at it or communities that have been harmed get the first crack at it yeah can i pick all of the above i think that unlike a lot of other um organizations in the space maps was really started with the intention of not just creating a medicine out of mdma but really challenging undermining and hopefully ending the war on drugs which Mm. does mean looking at all of those things that you just mentioned which looks like you know, creating maybe creating access to a product within an established market like healthcare that again comes with all of its baggage. Can psychedelic medicine change healthcare? Remains to be seen. It's a big question, but I think that's one aspect. The other has to do with decriminalization and the fact that regardless of your perspective on commercialization or use of the substance or even the morality of drug use itself, um, I think that we have lots of evidence over now multiple decades that criminalizing the behavior itself is actually a totally ineffective way to control or to ensure that responsible use is possible. And then lastly, regarding legalization, um, although we we do work toward the medicalization of the substance for the reasons that we've talked about, um, the idea that only doctors ought to be able to control access to some of these substances that we know are safe when used responsibly um, and are significantly safer than a lot of other legal substances, it feels feels some so, some kind of misaligned, and for those of us, 
and there are a lot of people within the movement and the industry, I would say, the ecosystem broadly, that had their first experiences with psychedelics outside of legal contexts. I think even you know, 10 years down the line, when we do have we do have access to these substances in legal contexts, I think that many people will still use them in illegal contexts. So the reality is that people are using them, people are benefiting from them, people are experiencing some of the harms and risks. So we're trying to approach this with a little bit more of an open mind where it's not just free for all, but it's like actually all of these things, decriminalization, legalization, medical access, these things can actually work in conjunction. And I would throw in a fourth one into the mix, which is spiritual use, which kind of falls into this category of what we were talking about with peyote and the Native American church, where you have, it's just a different kind of regulatory structure where it's like, um, you know, a spiritual practice that uses substances in a certain way. And I think that's something that's been borne out over history. And it's something that even in the U.S. for ayahuasca, for example, is permitted. So, yeah, there's it's absolutely true that we're going for this kind of multi-pronged approach because we believe that those things can work together. And I'll mention, importantly, that we're not talking about everything for every person. I think for people who have PTSD or multiple comorbidities who are very sensitive, you know, histories of trauma, some people really need more specialized care. And I think people like that should be should have the option to be in environments that are more medicalized if that's what they want, which is to say more oversight, more quality control, supervision, a lot of things that kind of come with medical care, which I think is some of the, the good things that come with medical care. On the flip side, if someone is, you know, for people who a bunch of kids in their mid-20s who want to have an experience, who don't have a history of trauma, and who have maybe even a parent or an older family member who's willing to hold space for them, that's something that should be able to happen without necessarily needing all of the bureaucracy of getting a diagnosis and do you deserve it? Are you sick enough to have access to these substances? I think that there's um, a broader argument for access that just needs to be done, as you said, responsibly. I love the idea of moving towards solidarity economics, not only because it's better, I think, from an economic community perspective, but I actually think that could lead to better health outcomes and better experiences because you're working with people who are invested in the community, who care about the community. The idea of like mass-produced psychedelic clinics that have like AI bots holding space for mm. people when they're doing their psychedelics oh. like freaks me out, not just because it's like probably not a very therapeutic environment, but also because that to me is the thing that would create the separation between the experience and the learning, which is actually, I think, what we're going for. And I think the closer those things are, the more community oriented it is, the closer it is, the closer we're going to see those kind of beneficial outcomes. Yeah. I mean, the idea of like Alexa, <laughs> you know, some Amazon product. <laughs> Hosting oh, your psilocybin therapy sessions is horrifying, right? Because <laughs> it, like you're so vulnerable, and, and that's part of the the space and part of the activity and the journey is like your incredible vulnerability. And then yeah, you can just imagine the way that our corporate overlords would exploit that. It is a horrifying thought. One of the <laughs> things that's also interesting, Ismail, is um, a lot of these learnings that are now being more formalized and that MAPS is really involved with, you know, doing in a scientifically rigorous way so that you can potentially get FDA approval here. But a lot of these learnings, there were indications a long time ago, back in the 60s, even in the 50s, that there were potential, you know, therapeutic um, benefits. These uh, LSD and psilocybin were being touted as potential wonder drugs at one point. And then there was this massive government freakout. Everything's pushed underground, pushed down to the mainstream. And a lot of this research is um, either shut down or scientists are essentially too afraid to engage in it for fear of being um, professionally ostracized and pushed down of their careers. Right. 
how did this type of research become mainstream again? And I know you all are very intentional about trying to make it mainstream so that this isn't some like scary, weird thing that only, you know, crazy hippies are doing, but is something that can be done responsibly and has a place within normal American mainstream culture. Right. So after almost... It's probably 30 something years of a lot of that research being shut down. So actually, I'll, I'll back up. So you're right. So in the 50s and 60s and probably earlier than that, there was um, quite a bit of research happening, especially on LSD, on some on psilocybin and some of these other substances. Um, LSD uh, became known even then as a potential treatment for alcoholism as early as the 50s. And um, studies were being done with it for creativity, for all kinds of things at that time. Um, and yeah, the, even even in the early days of MDMA in the late 70s before it was criminalized, it was also used in the semi-unregulated underground as an adjunct to psychotherapy for couples therapy and for PTSD treatment. So it's true that we're not exactly reinventing the wheel here when it comes to some of the benefits that these substances may have. In the early 1990s, there was an attempt to start a, a study with LSD, which failed for um, a few different reasons, one of which being one of which was a very unfriendly media presence to the idea of trying to study LSD for its mm. benefits. Um, and then in 1994-95, Dr. Rick Strassman successfully completed a trial or a, a study with DMT, which I think is one of the first successful studies with respect to a psychedelic and its effects. And there's a book called The Spirit Molecule that's about that study and what its findings were. Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, founded MAPS in 86, started compiling information over the course of the 90s. And by I think 2001 had started has started trying to submit um, uh, IR, submit uh, applications to IRBs, institutional review boards, to start you know getting permission for human trials with MDMA. Um, that first round was successfully completed in 2004, which is when I think the first phase one dose response trials were conducted or started being conducted with MDMA. So we're really talking about you know 20. 15 to 20 years that a lot of the research has really picked up. The psilocybin research also started around then in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then I would say the really big mainstreaming that you're talking about has happened within the last five or six years. MAPS released its phase two trial or phase two results at the end of 2016, shortly after I started working there actually. Um, and then I think the combination of FDA granting MAPS and other orgs uh, breakthrough therapy status. I think Michael Pollan's book coming out in 2018 um, and the increased amount of content around this and that kind of with the backdrop of, frankly, a really increasingly desperate populace. I think if you look at the overdose crisis and like the, the use crisis, like there's I feel like we're in a different paradigm now where even five years ago or 10 years ago, you had to kind of convince people that mental health was a big deal and something we should yeah. think about. Yeah. At this point, I think everyone has a family member who's been affected by addiction or suicide or depression. Yeah. So I think that, and is open, able to be open about it because although there's still a lot of stigma, there's slightly less or at least enough that people are willing to get help, um, which is something that I think wasn't true before. And there was so much shame and people would kind of try to deal with it within their family and this is something that I've certainly seen in immigrant families where there's mm. still a lot of shame around being able to talk about problematic substance use, which is something that affects literally people at every walk of life, every single shade of whatever, you know. So I think that 
the general sense that we need some sort of solution, that pharmaceutical solutions aren't working, and that whatever we're doing to attempt to treat or deal with some of these concerns um, just doesn't exist. People are that, frankly, I think the fact that people are a little bit more desperate has made them more open-minded. And thankfully, sub substances like psychedelics do have some of these benefits. But this is why I keep being a little bit cagey with it, where I like, I'm excited about all the media attention. I'm excited about all the movement toward creating legal access. And I don't want it to be something that, you know, flips the um, flips on the total other side of the spectrum. And suddenly everyone's like so excited that we, you know, if something backfires and people get um, people are using substances that, are, that they don't that, that aren't as safe and people are already doing it. It's what's happening in the underground. But it's a different thing, like you said earlier, when you have like advertising and you have a market, an open market where people are really trying to. Um, openly bring access to it. So I just think that, that that increasing desperation, the increasing awareness of mental health and the research all kind of have come together into this place where people are like, wait a minute, like you said earlier, Kyle, maybe it wasn't science that justified these decisions in the first right. place. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. scary part about that to say is that I'm not convinced yet that science and evidence is the thing that moves policy today either. You know, right. I think that yeah. it's oh. a, it, it certainly helps it certainly helps, but it's definitely only one factor of many. I see your face. I'm like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at what Oxy has done. If you like, and that is part of the context of what you're saying too, is you had a massive addiction crisis that hit white people um, more than black people for once. And now those numbers are changing where actually over mm -hmm. the course of the pandemic, you had a, an uptick in African-American overdose yeah. death with regard to opioid abuse as well. So I do think that's part of that cultural shift. So, um, SSRIs, I mean, I've, it's sort of a mixed bag. I've talked to people who feel like they've really helped them and improved their lives in, in massive ways, and then others, you know, not so much. So it's the evidence, at least anecdotally in my experience, seems a little mixed. But if I'm not mistaken, I think some of the, the official literature on it is kind of mixed. Um, do you agree that, you know, one of the reasons why psychedelics are becoming more appealing to people from a medicinal perspective is that we are sort of stuck in neutral with all sorts of mental illness issues and, and psychological issues. And it's been like that for decades. And also, isn't it true that the evidence we're seeing so far, like what you said earlier with your, your study that you're working on, isn't that like way more promising than anything we've seen to this point when it comes to mental health? Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on SSRIs, so I'm usually hesitant to talk too much about them as a psychiatric as as a psychiatric kind of um, intervention because, I, like you said, I do think they work really well for some people. Right. Yeah. Um, I believe that many of the SSRIs, their efficacy falls in about the thirty percent range. Um, speaking yep. very broadly, um, and it's true then that you know the MDMA therapy, if you were to compare on those grounds, like mm -hmm. might like definitely seem like a much different kind of range of benefit and possibility. I think that it's important to recognize the difference in the type of um, the type of care that we're talking about. Like I mentioned earlier, most SSRIs and, and other drugs are seen as kind of more palliative where you take it um, either forever or at least for a significant period of time every day to adjust your mood or adjust whatever, whereas psychedelics fit a little bit more into the category of what you might call like a interruption or a surgical intervention almost. It's like a psychological surgery where it's a very short period of time, few applications, but a lot changes in that period of time. Um, so there is there is that significant difference. And I think that it is true that from a 
the perspective of, you know, looking at potential benefit for mental health indications, psychedelics seem incredibly promising. Mm. However, I do want to be careful not to fall into the trap of overly individualizing mental health, which I think is something that psychiatry does that a lot of kind of quote unquote modern medicinal contemporary medicinal context do when it comes to psychological care, which is to say all of the things that are happening, the PTSD, the depression, the anxiety, whatever, it's like happening inside of the mind of this person. Um, I think it's actually really important to be bringing in conversations around social de determinants of health, which is why I said what I said earlier about right, these yeah. other social services, these other, these other things. It's really, I imagine it's harder to not be depressed in the grinding post-industrial capitalist hellscape that we find ourselves in nowadays. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a little bit of a dramatic way to put it, but it's definitely true that, you know, the fact that people have less time for themselves, that they're getting less time outside, that they're more impacted by their economic realities, that people like all of these things totally contribute to mental health. So I'm a little bit hesitant to say, well, if we just give them the right treatment, they'll be better, because I think that that's mm. certainly part of it. And I think there's a lot of benefit that can come out of this treatment that actually allows people to build momentum over time to then make other changes in their lives, which are hugely beneficial to folks. And I don't want to undermine that. But there's no question to me that a lot of the things that are actually under underlying some of these anxieties and traumas have a lot to do with the way society currently operates. So I think I hope that the psychedelic experience, uh, of course, there's like the trope of it making people anti-war and loving each other. And that doesn't sound so bad to me. You yeah, know? I love like, that. Yeah, that that sounds wonderful. Something <laughs> a little bit more creative and something more um, something that, that opens up more opportunities for more people, whether or not they're taking psychedelics, you know. Yeah, I think that's really well said. When you look at a nation, a wealthy nation that has the addiction levels and suicide levels, and um, I just saw some stats about how young Americans have been dying at higher and higher rates. I mean, what a basic metric to be failing on, that young people totally. are literally dying at increasing rates. That's not a personal problem, right? That's a that's a societal wide problem. Um, but it's great to have these type of interventions that can help people in the context of the society that we live in. The last question I had for you, Ismael, is who should avoid psychedelics, right? Mm. Who is this not probably appropriate for? What's the profile of someone for whom this could be a riskier uh, choice to make? And what are your tips for potential first timers like Kyle and myself? <laughs> um, I, I love this question. I'm really glad you asked because there's so much interest and there's a lot of like media excitement, but there's also a lot of misinformation. And I think it's really important for people to have practical knowledge. And this is really in the realm of harm reduction. You know, like we know people are going to use it. How do we help them use it in the safest way possible? So, um, you know, different people will have different perspectives on this. Mine is that the number one thing about whether or not someone ought to use psychedelics has to do with the amount of support they have. Mm -hmm. um, and that can look like a lot of things. Like that can look like a trusted friend who, and that can be an acute question or like a larger one. So if you look at it in an acute, like a, you know, immediate way. During an experience, you know, there's this concept of set and setting and dose. Like, you know, it's really important that you evaluate your mindset. Are you in a place that maybe you're not stable? Maybe you're going through a lot of things. Maybe you've just experienced the trauma. There's times where people are more vulnerable and should be more careful about their psychological safety, not just with psychedelics, but in general, because people are more vulnerable. When you look at the setting, is it a safe place? Do you have the time you need? Do you have like literally hours where you can not be on your phone and not have to call anyone or get groceries or do anything? Do you have everything set up? So I think the question for me is like, do you have all of the things in your environment that are needed? That I think is a major, major factor, probably the most important one. Um, I'll talk a little bit also about 
people's psychological health. But I think just to start, um, I think people have a tendency to do high doses of psychedelics in really chaotic environments like festivals or clubs. And there's no doubt that some of those can be really, some of those experiences can have really powerful transformative effects for people. But the thing about psychedelics is that they're a bit hard to control by the person who's having the experience, which when you're sitting on a couch with eye shades and music with like an altar next to you and someone holding space, maybe that's fine that that trauma comes up. But if you're like at a club and you're trying to have fun and suddenly you have all these memories of your early childhood experiences, maybe you've repressed them, maybe they're, you know, that that does happen and that can be really overwhelming and lead to ruptures in people's psych psychological experience, which can cause a lot of psychological damage or lead to erratic behavior. So it's really important that people think about like, what is like the material that I'm working with that I've got going? Because mm -hmm. if you're not thinking ahead about what is going to come up, then it's going to decide for you. So that's a big part of it. It's really good to have intention to take time to think through it. Um, and I would say the other kind of macro level of support is community support. I think some of the situations that I've seen in which psychedelics go the worst is when people don't have people they can talk to about it. So they have a really powerful experience and then they have literally nobody they can share it with because mm -hmm. they're afraid of getting judged or they think it, they know it's illegal. So they're worried about getting in trouble. And then suddenly you have people that are, you know, have this what could have been maybe a really positive transformative experience, but they're, they're repressing it. They can't share it. They don't know what to do with it. And that itself can cause its own kind of psychological mm -hmm. impact. Right. So I would say the first thing is like, do you have the support that you need? Like, can you, are there people you can talk to? Do you have like a mentor or someone who's had an experience before? Are you doing the research? That's the other thing. And then the other one that I think is more like practical is um, our studies for sure. And this is part of controlling variables, I think, but it's also true in general, um, do sometimes have, you know, certain limitations. And a lot of psychedelic trials, I think, have limitations for people who are dealing with, like, active suicidal ideation, who are dealing with certain um, elements of, like, ongoing psychosis. There's definitely, when people are coming from a more psychologically sensitive place, not just from the things that I just mentioned, but also who might themselves have really strong diagnoses, um, it's, it's, a, it's better to be to be doing, if you're going to be using psychedelics, if someone's going to be using them with that kind of history or context, um, that they that they have even more support and ideally are talking to someone who can provide some level of, if not like oversight, at least input on how they're using. Um, because it's kind of, it can be easy to have a positive experience and then to keep trying to have positive experiences and then leading to you know, mania or psychotic breaks that definitely does happen. And it's not a permanent thing. People can and do come back from them. Um, but it's really nice to not have to be in that part place in the first place. And a lot of that has to do with like, are you evaluating the environment that you're in? The last thing I'll say, especially because most people who are taking psychedelics are doing it in the underground is the substance and the dose. Yeah. It's really important to test your, test your stuff. You can get substance analysis kits online, dancesafe.org, um, mm. does sell them. You can find them in other places. They're gray area legality in certain places, unfortunately, but it's really important to know if you can to test what you have. Um, there's a there's a fentanyl test strips for people that are using you know powdered substances to test to oh, make wow. sure they don't have fentanyl in them. So yeah, these are all things that can be found that would exactly that would be that are really important. Like it would it would be frustrating certainly to have a challenging psych psychological experience, but it's a tragedy when the drugs are are tainted and people die on accident right. of overdose, which happens yeah. to so many people. Um, and yeah. actually, just one quick tiny thing is. Uh, the other thing to be aware of for folks that are watching is um, pressed pharmaceuticals. There's a lot more um, pressed, like uh, counterfeit pharmaceuticals on the market now. 
um, that look like opioids or that they are, but they're, they, they contain a lot of other substances. So I just want people to be very, very, very careful when they're buying substances in the underground because although that is really the only way some people have access and there are ways to do that safely, um, it's really important that people test their drugs, that they know their source, that they ask questions. It's okay to ask those questions. It's really important. We don't want people to be dying on accident. Um, and I think that's really important to just be, to be aware of. Yeah. I um, Ismael, fantastic talking to you. So thoughtful, so knowledgeable. Um, this has been incredibly helpful. And where can people find you and where can they find uh, the latest that's going on with MAPS? Yeah, so you can check out our website, www.maps.org. We received that uh, domain in like 1994, I think. Mm. So we got maps.org many, many nice. years ago. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sage. S-A-G-E underscore Izzy, I-Z-Z-Y, Sage Izzy. Um, and maybe I'll put a plug in for Students for Sensible Drug Policy for younger people who are looking for a kind of community around this. Check out SSDP, schoolsnotprisons.org. There's a lot to see there. And then lastly, for people that are interested that are in the legal space, uh, we're in the process of founding and launching the Psychedelic Bar Association, which is for cool. attorneys and other legal practitioners mm. um, who are seeking to actually think about how do we, a lot of the questions that you brought up, Crystal and Kyle, like how do we bring these into the mainstream or into the above ground responsibly, whether it's economically, socially, politically, and so on. So um, check us out. That's the, psych the psychedelicbar.org. Um, and SSCP is schoolsnotprisons.org, MAPS is maps.org, bunch of organizations, a bunch of nonprofits come through. <laughs> awesome. Thanks Thank so you. much, Ismail. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this conversation. All right. So that was Ismail Ali of MAPS. Um, that was absolutely fantastic. Love that guy. He's he has amazing. so much knowledge on all this stuff, you know? Like, if you didn't tell me, like, I would have thought he was a doctor. I would have thought he was a doctor, you know, or some sort of specific medicinal expert, you yeah. know? Well, you know, I've been looking for someone. We've been looking for someone to have this conversation for a while now. You and I have been talking about um, digging into the psychedelic drug research. And I really wanted someone who had the full context of, like, the science and the history and the cultural aspects and the policy. And he had all of that in one package. Um, we didn't even get into like MK Ultra and the U.S. government stuff. It's just like there was no question that you could ask him that he wouldn't have deep insight into. So super helpful. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because early on when I asked that question about the history of drug laws in the U.S., I sort of hesitated to do it because I'm like, this is a hard question. <laughs> like a lot of people, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah. you and I are political experts and I barely, I was like, I think early 1900s was the first drug laws. And he was like, actually it was late 1800s was the first few. And then right. later on, and he went through the whole thing, mm -hmm. Chinese exclusion act. The 1930s was, um, marijuana ca cannabis originally, but that, I don't know if you know this, the term marijuana was actually used in a derogatory way to describe the drug as it pertains to Mexicans. Mm. So that word actually originally was very problematic mm. and now it's just become part of the vernacular in a non-problematic way, which might be the first time it worked that w in that direction, right? Doesn't it usually go the other way? Something starts benign and then becomes problematic later. This one started problematic and now everybody views it as benign. Uh, I think a lot of times the thing starts problematic as a pejorative. And then people just use it so regularly that it uses it loses it its loses sting. its bite yeah over the next and then few generations it comes back that people are like you know you really shouldn't be saying yeah if you guys look that wagon up, or whatever it is if, <laughs> is one example <laughs> if you guys look that one up I don't think I think it was originally spelled with an H marijuana 
not Mara, not with a J. Okay. And I think they spelled it that way, and I'm pretty sure that that was the story behind it. That you know, it was not. It was viewed in a in a derogatory sense. But anyway, getting into the um, the history of that stuff with him was really cool. And yeah, just uh, I asked him about all these different substances, whether it was he said his research was primarily MDMA, um, LSD. I asked about peyote, ibogaine. Um, DMT, psilocybin, and he actually knew, see, I didn't know which things were good for um, depression and anxiety and which things were good for PTSD. He did the study, they did the study with PTSD, where they found a 67% improvement, was yeah, it? 66 and, or something. And just to, to buttress his point, uh, the talk therapy in the study was just as important as the actual substance, because yeah. I remember when I read when I was reading the articles on it, I was a little surprised by that because I'm a little more skeptical on the talk therapy front. Mm. So I was like, I don't know. Is this going to is this like is this really that important? But apparently, yes, if you take away the talk therapy, it drops quite a bit in terms of how it's more around SSRI level in terms of how well it works when you get rid of yeah. the talk therapy. Well, OK, I, I haven't done any of these substances, so I have no firsthand knowledge. But um, the reading I've done is that the, the reason is because these experiences, these psychedelic experiences are very suggestible. So they always talk about the set and the setting, right? What do you want to get out of it? Like setting the context, being in the right place. All of those things can really change the experience of the trip or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so it makes sense to me, given that that's the case, that the experience is very suggestible and that you're likely to get out of it what you come into it with, what your expectations are and all of that. It makes sense to me then that the talk therapy and having someone who knows what they're doing to put you in that right space. And then afterwards, just as important, and this is part of what Ismail was saying too, is to have someone who can help you make sense of what you experienced and kind of write it down in somewhat of a coherent way so you can integrate it into your life. You know, it's funny because they say marijuana is mildly psychedelic mm. and the set and setting thing even hit me with, with that. that. Yeah, for where sure. Where I remember, for you know, sure. being in high school or being in college, being at some party I didn't want to fucking be at. And it's like you take some hits of weed and then all of a sudden you're like, you, you don't you don't feel great. You feel weird off. You don't want to feel like that. You don't want to be, be there. I wanna, yeah, I don't yeah. even like these fucking people. What am I doing here? But then contrast that with recently picked picked it back up a little bit, but it'd just be a hit or two every now and then. That was the other mistake I did. Is I smoked way too much back when I was younger, thinking like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Smoke half a blunt to the face. And it's like, no, you idiot. So now you just take a couple hits, and if the set and setting is right, it's like, oh, this is actually a nice little addition. It's not something that necessarily is tied to feelings of paranoia or whatever, which Back in the day for me, it was. You know, what he was saying about tobacco was interesting to me, too, in thinking about, okay, if we're moving, at least with marijuana and psychedelics, if we're starting to move away from a prohibition mindset and we're opening up these new markets, what's that going to look like? With tobacco being a totally, like, cautionary tale in that regard. And... I knew intellectually, if you had asked me, I knew that tobacco was used in these sacred and religious contexts um, among indigenous peoples, but I hadn't really thought of it in that sort of context and how, you know, colonizers came and they saw this as a very lucrative product and then they commercialized, they commodify it, and now it is, you know, where it is today. One thing that gives me hope with regards to psychedelics is that it isn't actually a substance where they're saying you need to take this every day for the rest of your life. It's also 
I'm sure that there are everything can be addictive, but it's also not, you know, highly addictive in the way that other substances can be. So maybe it won't be as profitable to drug companies. Maybe it won't be as easy to exploit and like market drive and just turn into, you know, a totally hellish situation. So I have slightly different takes than than you and Ali on this and Ismael on this. I feel like that aspect of it, the the ability to commodify it, mm. I feel like that actually makes it much more likely that eventually you'll win. Because think about marijuana. If there didn't come a time where the corporations were like, hmm, we can make money off this. Yeah, well, it's a double We arguably sword. never would have won on this fight, mm -hmm. ever. That's In fact, true. we still didn't fully win, but we're getting there. There's a lot of states now that are like, all right, fucking have your weed. And so if you ask me, like, keep it like it is right now, or... Legalize tax and regulate it, and people could commercialize the fuck out of it. I say, I'll take the commercialization oh, side of it over this any oh, day yeah. of the week. No, I agree. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I don't want to, I mean, listen, the way that people have been criminalized, incarcerated, all of that stuff. I mean, prohibition is a total disaster on every single level. But it also made me glad to know that there are really thoughtful, thoughtful people like Ismael who are thinking about how to do it in a thoughtful way so that it's at least less of a sort of like hellscape of market. Here's a question, though. Do you think so even with the states that are doing it the right way, mm. like New York's kind of doing it the right way in terms of how they're legalizing marijuana, where it's like, well, let's, you know, only certain businesses can do it. And it's gonna, the first crack at it goes to the communities that have been harmed by it. Yeah. But don't is that going to last? Like, I feel like within three or four years, they'll just secretly be like, all right, and now, you know, the big tobacco companies can get in on it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to, is it permanent that it's going to be like this? And and is that even the right thing? Like, in the long run, if you want to start a marijuana business and you're some white kid from, you know, an upper middle class family, are you should you not be, be allowed to do it because you're because of your demographics? And isn't that maybe wrong also? I think that the question of who will benefit from the initial opening of the markets is an important one in terms of like redressing past wrongs. But I don't think it's a complete um, view of this because and this is the part it's like, OK, who will benefit? And let's not just let the big tobacco companies come in. Let's actually give a chance for the communities that have suffered most from the war on drugs to be able to now profit as we open these markets. Like that's that's really important. And that's a good thing to do. The other piece of it, though, is like, what are the values that are going to undergird this? Is this ultimately just going to be all right? So you get first crack at it and you're, you know, in a minority community that's been overwhelmingly affected. But 10 years down the road, now you're like marijuana mogul and you're focused only on the bottom line and the profit margin too, that doesn't ultimately end up in a fundamentally different place, right? So again, who benefits from the jump of opening the market? Really important. But also what are the values that undergird it and what's a way that we can do it that's different than the tobacco market, different than the alcohol market, different than, you know, the horrible healthcare system or big pharma or any of that. That's a more challenging question. That's why the model that they're contemplating in Rhode Island with having a co-op sector that's deeply involved. That's why, to me, that's a little more like that starts to get to an answer there that has some different values than just what's the bottom line? How can we profit most of this? How can we push this on people who really don't need it or who it might not be good for? I, I hear you for sure. I, yeah. I do feel a little bit uncomfortable, though, with like the way we're sort of separating stuff out and having different sets of rules for different parts of the economy. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that, something about that doesn't sit right 
to me because it's like if we're going to do work around cops, which I love that idea, by the way, like let's have it more across the board and let's not just have it limited yeah. to the to the well, weed sector. I that just strikes me as weird. I would rather have it across. Of course the board. you would. Yeah, no, I know but that. It I know could that. also be the opposite where it starts in right, this and then one specific sure. market. I can see that too, I guess. And then you see like, oh, actually co ops aren't, cause, you know, there's a stereotype in America. Co ops are an almost non existent part of the American economy. It's like tiny, tiny sliver, mm-hmm. although seems to be growing right at the moment as people look for these like different ways of organizing and meaning and whatever in their lives. So I see it as the, we're not maybe going to be able to have co-ops writ large in America, but if you can start and prove something else out in this market and get a level of comfort with it, then maybe it spreads to other sectors. You know, I, so yes to that, but I, I also like just the, it's either the Oregon or the Washington model where they just like, they have their legal weed and they tax it and they're like, we're going to take this money and give it to education. That's what we're going to do. And I love that. And so to your point about and and to Ismail's point about redressing the grievances of the drug war, which is something that we should do, absolutely have to do, I would argue. Yeah. I like the idea of legalizing it, taxing it and regulating it across the country. And then what you do with those funds is you can allocate a significant percentage of the money or all the money to sort of rebuilding the communities that were obliterated. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. a, that's a way that I like. I actually like that better than the idea of like legalize a tax and regulate it, but only people who've been impacted negatively can open those businesses. Because then I like Ismail was saying, it sort of gets into weird territory where it's like, all right, was it you that were directly impacted by this or was it like the previous generation right. or mm-hmm. was it somebody who you're related to? And it, it just gets weird and there's yeah. too many and too many are, nuances there. There are white people who have been fucked over by the oh, war on drugs too. Appalachia. Just go to I mean, Appalachia yeah, and talk to them about, you know, oxy and fentanyl and um, all of that. And I guess it's a little bit, it's a little bit less complicated, I think, with cannabis because there are so few actual health risks you know i don't want to say there's no health risks but in terms of there are other drugs with much higher overdose or potential addiction rates and psychedelics are another one where um most psychedelics there's a relatively low risk profile right you might there's certainly plenty of instances of a bad trip where you have some sort of uh psychological break those issues do occur but again it's not as risky um, of a drug as some others could be, where I think it starts to get where these questions become more and more profound is when you talk about hair, like if we legalize heroin, yeah, see, we legalize cocaine. This is where we disagree. You really? know that. Well, why is that? Well, we disagree in the sense that I have more of a principled, let's, even if it hurts you, it's your decision. Oh, no, I agree. You know what I mean? I don't, oh, okay. I don't disagree on that. Okay. I'm just saying it starts to be more important. It's not just like, well, let's, let's, have a free-for-all, and then we'll tax it and help the communities after the fact, I think then it becomes more important what the economic model undergirding the legalization is. And what now, the regulation choice, is. Yeah, 100%. Now, if my choice is just like free-for-all versus the ter- current terrible prohibition system, 100%. I take let, yeah. let responsible adults like do what they're going to do. But uh, as you consider drugs that have more potential harmful effects, I think these questions about how you organize the market become more important is all I'm saying. Yeah. No, I mean, I I hear all that for sure. I don't think a lot of people understand, though, that um, like there was a time when heroin effectively was legal in this country. Oh, it, and, it literally was. Yeah, I mean, was it was marketed. It was created by Bear, like that. Yeah, by Bear, it's called like aspirin, laudanum. They used to take it company. All the time in the in the old west, they used to take it. You know, it they, was marketed to housewives and to soothe crying babies. 
So yeah. And guess what? <laughs> that shit works, son. Are you kidding me? Some like really sad, depressed housewife. You give her some heroin. She's like, ha, ah, uh. love life. <laughs> give it to the crying baby. The baby's like. <laughs> so yeah, like anyway, I think my point is that even though things might seem weird, might seem radical, might seem extreme within the context of our current society, uh, if you zoom out a little bit, it's not really extreme. Yeah. You know? It's not well, really all that extreme. I just, uh, like the soda market, for example, is fucking evil. This is where is we agree. Yeah. See, when I say I want to legalize, tax, and regulate, so much hinges on every word. Mm -hmm. So yes, I want to legalize, but I want to tax too. And in some instances, if, the, if I think the product is really bad, yeah. I'm going to tax the shit out of it. And then a lot hinges on regulate. So would I actually, like, would I legalize fentanyl for everybody? No, because it's a fucking horse tranquilizer. And it's like if you took heroin and you injected it with human growth hormones and, and steroids. And it's just, you can have a, a, a lower potency opioid available for people. That's biggest, my point. So regulation right. is important. You the know what I mean? The biggest reason fentanyl exists is because of prohibition. Because it's so potent that you can smuggle, you know, a suitcase worth and it's as as much in terms of like potency of the drug as much, much more. Well, that's why it's on the streets. Yeah. The, the actual reason they created it was terminal cancer. Yeah, but that's four. why I'm saying that's right, why yeah. it's such a problem is because it's very effective for smugglers because you don't need very much of it. Right. And so you can bring it in in a suitcase, et cetera. So most people aren't don't want fentanyl right that's <laughs> so how philip seymour hoffman else, died that was the speculation philip seymour hoffman if there's something else available then they're gonna they're gonna go for that but i guess the way i look at this is um it, no secret i'm not a fan of the way that uh american unfettered capitalism is organized and i would ban the ads too done by the way to communities writ large so i see as we're opening up these new markets i see it as a chance to experiment with models that take something else other than just profit into account. Of course. So that's that's kind of one of the things that I'm most interested about as we move forward with these conversations. But I would ban the ads. I mean, whether yeah. it's for all the psychedelics, whether it's for any of the Ad other sort of drugs we're ta talking about. First of all, I wouldn't only <laughs> I, I wouldn't only ban, ban ads altogether. <laughs> I wouldn't only ban recreational drug ads. I would ban pharma drug ads. Mm. You know, hundred percent. They're banned in I mean, every other developed country. Be, we're the only one that's not. It's, yeah, it's really. Um, hellscape situation when you listen to all of these drug ads. What was it, the interview that we, that, uh... So there was an interview with on uh, the royal family, where Meghan with and whoever... Like Oprah and did it or something? Something no. like that. And there were people from the UK who tuned into the interview because they yeah. wanted to see it. And, and like, when they saw the drug the ads, they were <laughs> horrified. They were like, when you get sick... Ask your doctor? What are you When you get sick, about? you go get help, and they prescribe some shit for you. What are you talking about? Go in and you ask them some shit? Like, what yeah. are you talking about? I don't have a fucking medical degree. What, right. are you crazy? Right. They were just like, this is insane. How, how is this allowed? And they're right. They're right yeah, about all of it. Completely. Um, Ismail, great, great resource. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. Make sure you check out the great work that Maps is doing. Super grateful for his time. Super super grateful for you guys' time. You want to do a, a pitch to subscribe? Oh, sure. Yeah, everybody uh, on Substack, $5 a month, you get the video of Crystal Kyle and Friends and you get it a day early. Highly recommend it. We we take $0 and 0 cents in ad money for this show. We told of ads. We told all uh, advertisers they could fuck off quite simply. And believe me, people would love to throw money at us to put some stuff on this podcast, but we wanted to create something a little bit more pure. So if you support what we're doing, uh, go on over to Substack and pay the $5 and you get the video and you get it a day early. And if not, don't worry. It's okay. We know it's tough out there for some people and, and we fully understand. You can still get the podcast completely for free. It's just uh, in the audio 
version and it comes out a day later. And for that, you could also sign up on Substack for free. So uh, definitely check that out as well. And I think we're going to have Brianna Joy Gray in studio next week. So that's going to be a fun one. You don't want to miss that. Um, Love you guys. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week.